Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. And good morning to you. I'm Kathy Kaler. Today is the 18th of July. Can you believe it? It is Mandela Day here in South Africa. What are you doing for Mandela Day? Well, you know, Mandela was all about future generations. You know, there's that saying, plant a tree in whose shade you will never sit. I think that's his legacy. It has become something that for generations, our, gen our children's generations, and so I think we need to talk about protecting our children. There's a lot of things that we teach our children that I think are incorrect. Uh, one of them is, and uh, please understand, I'm not saying this as a psychologist, I'm saying this as somebody who has spoken to experts around the world. The first thing that we teach children that is false is don't talk to strangers. Well, firstly, if you don't talk to strangers, you'll never make any friends. Secondly, and more importantly, if you don't talk to strangers, you will never develop an instinct for people. That's how you develop an instinct from people. Get your children to talk to strangers. Sit, in a bench out, sit on a bench outside a store, send them into the store and get them to ask for something or buy something. Teach them independence so they, they're more comfortable speaking to people that they don't know. Secondly, we also teach children not to have adults as friends. Well, sometimes an adult is where help is going to come from. So I think that that is definitely false. But you know what, there's a, there's a lot of myths around how we are raising our children. So I thought, let's get hold of the best possible expert who we can speak to. And joining me is Dr. Shahida Omar. She is the CEO of the Teddy Bear Clinic. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Kathy, and thank you to Chai FM for this great, awesome opportunity. No, thank you for making time. So let's just talk about generally the myths that we that we have raised our children to believe around what is right and what is wrong in terms of their own safety. Okay, so I think you alluded to the stranger danger scenario and yes, we know that in 80 to 90% of the cases where children have been abused or victimized, it's usually people that they have a relationship with, people that uh, they have some kind of connection with. So it's, we know that the stranger danger scenario does exist, but it's not as prevalent as somebody that has close access and availability to a child. So I think the issues of trust, betrayal, secrecy are some of the things that we see. So the myth around stranger danger it is something that we need to look at closely. And you, you did mention that how do children forge relationships, connect with other people, the ties that they make, uh, and learn to engage. And of course, also through their experiences, understand what is, uh, you know, what are protective situations, what are risky situations. So the myth around stranger danger is something that we need to look at very carefully. And then there's also myths around the fact that it's always adults that violate children. Yes, the incidence and prevalence of adult and child abuse does exist. 
but we also need to look at the reality now where just under 50%, over 45% of children are violating other children, whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's cyberbullying, whether it's bullying, so they are the, and, and the physical abuse that we are finding uh, more and more rife in schools across the country. What sort of age? What sort so of ages? So we would find at a high-risk age cohort, we're looking at children, your prepubescent child to pu puberty. And, of course, uh, that is the time or the age where children are having more access to technology. They are, of course, engaging with the Internet, with social media, and they're also exposed to a lot of uh, violence, which is normalized on national TV, the adverts that they are exposed to. And something that we need to appreciate and recognize is that the adverts that we see with alcohol, it's made so attractive. It's eroticized, the grandiosity, the valorization. It's almost the subliminal message that is conveyed to children that if you do not partake, you're actually missing out. So Yeah, absolutely. You won't get the gorgeous girl. I mean, we all know that alcohol and, makes and other people look better, don't, doesn't it? And it's, or it's synonymous with success of having arrived. Because if you just look at all those images of the people, the young people, and, uh, you know, also re the messaging that is conveyed is that, you know, uh, uh, alcohol is the panacea for all ills. So if there's some pain, there's some trauma, there's some celebration, it's all about alcohol. Alcohol seems to be the best quick fix. And so we need to also understand the other myth is when you you know you asked about myths is that p uh, is it alcohol that's contributing to abuse alcohol does have a role to play you know in terms of child maltreatment so violence against children and violence against women and i think people use alcohol as a crutch uh, blaming alcohol when actually they have the power of choice. So that's another myth just to say that, yes, it's alcohol. Yes, alcohol does contribute to it, but people also have a, a rational understanding and they have the cognitive component that they need to factor and consider. So it's a lot about underlying issues. Well, I think it's so important what you, what you are alluding to is that alcohol might... Um, give somebody the bravado, Indeed. somebody who wouldn't necessarily Indeed. be a molester mm. with enough alcohol will become a molester. Is that mm. what you're saying? Absolutely. Thank you for summarizing that. Yes, definitely. That's why, why, why are we selling ourselves out for alcohol? So if we look at the uh, liquor industry, I spoke to you about the lucrative advertising industry, but we need to look at our uh, uh, liquor amendment bill, which of two 20, uh, 2017, it was submitted to cabinet and nothing happened. Nothing happened. It's still sitting with cabinet. And as we can see, what has happened? 
we see uh, scenarios like the Inyobeni case. And there are many children that have been affected, many families across the country, because it's not the first tavern or shabin that has uh, allowed children access into these facilities, has promoted the sale of alcohol. We find that this is actually a common occurrence. So were kids going, sorry Shahida, were kids, from what you know, were kids going into taverns before the pandemic? Because I was thinking about this, why are so many of these 13-year-olds in taverns? But then I started thinking, well, hold on, in the last two years, they were attending, uh, over the course of the pandemic, they were attending school maybe one or two days a week, if they were lucky. What were they doing the rest of the time? So, a very good question, Kathy, and I think we need to look at this whole incident in, in, uh, of Inyobeni from a systemic perspective. So your, the answer to your question, were children going to taverns and shabins prior to the pandemic? Most definitely. And we can cast our minds to 2010-2011 with the Jules High saga in Jeppe. I don't remember that. Okay. Remind me. So these were children who had bought cocktail of alcohol and one of uh, one of the girls who was the initiator had sex with the boys on the school grounds everybody else was around there the other children they were taking video clippings and that went viral and this uh, young girl destroys lives well uh, to cut the chase to the tail the MEC for DSD and the MEC for Education all went to visit this girl's home in Soweto. So her identifying particulars became public knowledge, oh. the expose, the shame, the humiliation. However, the outcome was actually devastating. Uh, after being in therapy for a long time and getting support, she committed suicide. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. So, uh, and, and, you know, the... the Shabin was just close to the school. Now, according to the regulation, and if this poli policy was put in writing and approved by cabinet, uh, no Shabin or tavern should be within a 500 media radius near a school, a place of worship, places of residency. Unfortunately, that's not what we're finding. It's, it's a crazy thing. I mean, you, our bylaws state that you can't be drinking in a public area, right? And yet, a place that should be a safe area for children, they want to introduce alcohol. Is that what you... Yes. That's the bill that you're talking about, right? That's right, the Bella Bill. And, you know, if, if our education minister gets it right, it will go through and it would be approved. So what does that entail? It means that alcohol will be allowed to be sold at school for events, for, uh, you know, special events. Of course, they will not allow the sale to children, but there are anomalies there. We need to understand that some children at the age of 18 are still attending school. So how, how would one manage that? Because then it's a contradiction for that child because that well, child... Well, you just don't... Just like you don't smoke on the school grounds, you don't drink on the school grounds. That's and, the rule, right? And, and if we look at the deeper-seated issues, what messages are we giving to children? If you look at the whole issue of learning theory, observational theory, and how children 
get socially conditioned that it normalizes uh, the consumption of alcohol. And it's all about profit making. It's about generating funds. So the, the rationale behind the promotion of the sale of alcohol at schools are to raise funds. Now we know there are many other opportunities to raise funds, but if we just look at how it could impact on children's lives, the, un the most important thing that stands out for me is that we are putting money and profit making before children, before children's well-being. You're on 101.9 High FM. This is the Discam Medical Monday. My guest this morning is Dr. Shahida Omar. We are looking at the ways that we need to protect our children. We're looking at myth-busting of protecting children. Yes, children should definitely speak to strangers because, as Shahida said earlier, 90% of molestation and sexual abuse cases comes from people that they know. Just let that sink in for a minute. Uh, I actually saw a statistic that for every degree of separation, a male in the home, your, the chances of sexual abuse increase 30%. Okay. Have you seen that statistic? No, I haven't seen that statistic, but it's what we have found in our clinical practice is that where there's paternal absence, now what we mean by paternal absence is that the father figure could be in the home but emotionally still not available to the child. So that emotional unavailability would certainly, you know, uh, result in unmet emotional needs. Uh, and often in one of our programs that we work with young children who sexually offend other children, we have found that a significant percent of them have not had adequate male or adult male role models in their lives. And they, you know, have a single parent, usually a mother, and a lot of those children have resorted to maladaptive behavioral patterns. It's their way of trying to solve their problems. Their I want to talk about. I want to talk about that in a moment. Uh, today is the 18th of July. It is Mandela Day. I'm Kathy Kayla. My guest is Dr. Shahida Omar. Omar. She is the CEO of the Teddy Bear Clinic. And we're talking about how to protect our children, future generations. Plant a seed in whose shade you will never sit. That's the principle. What do we need to do to make things better for, well, I suppose, ensuing generations, <laughs> our descendants? There we go. There's a little bit of English for you. You want to get in touch with me? You want to send me a text, a message? You've got any questions? And I would love you to actually weigh in on should the alcohol be served at schools? Now, I'm not talking about school tuck shops. I'm talking about when there's a function at school, they're having a cricket match, and moms and dads are there, and they want to sell alcohol at their pavilions or wherever it is. What's your thought of that? Is it something where, you know what, go and have a cake and candy sale. That's how you raise funds. Don't sell alcohol. There's certain things that should not be normalized for children. Or do you look at it and say, hold on, alcohol is very lucrative. You can ask any restaurant. Until they're selling alcohol, they're not, you know, those profit margins are very, very slim. So you let me know what your thoughts are. 34519 is the text line or 061-895-1019 on Telegram. Go on, do it. I know you want to. 
This is Discam Medical Monday. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. This is, in fact, Discam Medical Monday. I am Kathy Kayla. And my guest is Dr. Shahida Omar. She is the CEO of the Teddy Bear Clinic. We're talking about ways to protect children. And one of the ways is through legislation. Now, right now, there is the Bella Bill. Where are we with the Bella Bill? This is about allowing alcohol to be sold in schools. Where are we with that bill, well, Shahida? Uh, at the moment, it's still sitting, you know, it, it with cabinet. It hasn't actually been passed. But I think with this Imoyeni case and the other killings in the taverns and shabins, there's going to be an escalation of this bill and, and of course, ensuring it, that it, it becomes legislated. And I think that's where we're currently at. So the Bella Bill would prevent alcohol from being sold on school grounds? On school grounds, but I think we also, we have made r- a written submission and have requested a an oral submission, and we are SAPA Alliance members, the South African Alcohol Policy Association. And the concerns are, and the issues that have been raised, as I mentioned earlier about the distance of uh, shabins and taverns not being close to places of worship, residence, schools. Secondly, to increase the taxes on alcohol, Thirdly, to increase the age of access to alcohol, to have restrictions on the free sale of alcohol over a certain, uh, you know, beyond a certain time. So after eight or, or on a weekend, also ensuring that there are certain restrictions. And it's all about protection. It's not about harming the industry. It's not telling people not to drink alcohol. We're not talking about abstinence here. And when, you know, when mention is made of drinking responsibly, that really gets my gut gut in a goat because that's a paradox. Everybody's level of consumption and effects, physiological effects are different. Some people may be able to tolerate a higher level of alcohol, and others may not. Absolutely, an alcohol ne- an alcoholic needs alcohol in order to function normally. Uh, so uh, yeah. I want to share a case study with you. Uh, a family at a very affluent school, it was a school event on a Friday night, and the mother, being a professional, coming from uh, both she and her husband, consumed alcohol, and as a result, she became quite inebriated. And, you know, there was a huge altercation with some other people where they, it ended up in a physical situation. However, the, the, the story goes is that the young girl then was subject to ridicule, humiliation by her peers. And right, look at your parents. Look what your yeah. parents said, yeah. And this young girl is in therapy. She's been self-cutting, self-mutilating. Uh, so just the ripple effect on how alcohol and how do you regulate how much people drink? Can you tell them at a school event or at a function that you cannot have more than this and you're going to be driving back home? Who's going to monitor that? How are we going to manage that? So you know, it's challenges. It's, funny, it's almost as though we don't have protecting children as a goal. 
Because mm. how goals work is that if you have a goal, mm. right, let's say the goal is protecting children, then everything has to align to that. Mm. And there's no consideration for the alcohol industry. We know. We saw when we went into our first lockdown, our first lockdown, we know that South Africa has a huge problem with alcohol generally. But what we're doing is we are creating consumers of alcohol for the future. Mm. And not only that, it's being done in such a way that it's marketed to them that they don't really stand a chance. Mm -mm. Absolutely. The opportunities are so restrictive and least empowering when you will look at those adverts who cannot submit themselves to those ads and, and with children who are so impressionable and are always vying for these kind of sexy images. They want to be seen as they have arrived and that it's avant-garde for them to do that. And that's what the advertising industry is doing. It's destroying the our children brainwashing them. So is it the advertising industry or is it the fact that bylaws are not being, and the law is not being enforced? A law is only as good as its enforcement. So it's both and. It's, it's your, the bylaws and also looking at the advertising industry where there needs to be more stricter measures of the adverts. So what would you do? If, if, you, if you, I don't know, you had this wonderful, I don't know, gin... Would you not? Are you saying that the advertising industry, or let me say, let me ask you, are you saying uh, that the advertising industry maybe it needs to be as regulated as cig the smoking and the cigarette industry? No television, no cinema adverts, just like there is with with cigarettes. Thank you, Kathy. I actually wanted to ra raise the issue of the tobacco industry and how uh, the strict enforcement and regulation was uh, instituted and, and what stops us from doing the same? What does alcohol? stop us from doing the same? The tobacco companies oh. were these, you know, these mega corporations, mm. just like SAB and every other alcohol producer. So what's stopping us is that we've become a complacent society. When we have an, uh, an explosion like the Imoyenis uh, uh, community, then everybody's running, Minister of Police, our president attends the funeral service and then a few comments are made. But then continue to sit on the bill. So we need to, you know what, it's not about talk, it's about seeing action, mobilizing action, where that becomes a piece of legislation that is implemented. Because we, if we look at all our policies, we have the best policies in the world. It's the implementation that is lagging and failing our society. Absolutely. I'm just, so before the Bella Bill, which prohibits the sale of alcohol on, on school premises, are you saying that there was no legislation governing that and it was just conscience and good management that prevented alcohol from being sold on school grounds, is that? That's correct. In 2015, the World Health Organization spoke about alcohol policy and then South Africa became a signatory to that in 2016 and then 2017 as I mentioned earlier it was uh, that the amended bill a liquor amended bill was handed to cabinet nothing happened so far so we wait and see but we need to take action I th you know as a nation 
that wants to thrive and that wants to see its future generations, you know, being successful, being happy, and and ensuring that the the, the future generation can t turn things around. We need to take action now. It's time now for us to stand up, speak out, and put our names down to ensure that children are not subjected to this kind of violation. Is there a place we can physically put our names down? Well, there's the Bella Bill. People can certainly look that up. And D-E-L-A. Yeah. What, is, what does it stand for? Basic Education you know, legislation against alcohol. Okay. But there's also SAPA. I think that would be a great platform, the South African Alcohol Association. Uh, so people can certainly contact. There are people physically that they can speak to. Okay. And, uh, you know, maybe if there's petitions. But it seems there like... There are lots of petitions from SAPA. I know, I know that when we did an interview on, uh, I think it was the Morning Mayhem, mm. it was about a month or two ago, mm. uh, we got a lot of calls afterwards mm. saying, where do we find the petition? Mm. We have to sign mm. it. Where's mm. the link? So, yeah, that was... But uh, it's, it's, it's uh, so uh, interesting uh, how you make different decisions when, when you have your goal as protecting children. So something that also I need to raise is that with petrol stations also making applications for the perm uh, permission or the permitting <laughs> the sale of that alcohol. Is, that is ludicrous. So you just drive in like for a <laughs> cappuccino. So you just drive in for some whatever alcohol you want and off you bite and off don't you go. Don't drink and drive. Like it's, it's, you know, one would think that we don't have, mm. you know, drunk drivers taking out other people. And, you and know. then you've got children in the car and then you're driving and we know there are many trauma-induced and Who's harm? driving this accessibility to alcohol? Because if I look, it almost looks like, you know, this tentacle approach. It's not enough that we've got the shabins and it's not enough that we've got the supermarkets and the restaurants and the bars. and But we also need to have it in schools and we need to have it in hospital gift shops and we need to have it in petrol stations. I mean, if there are two contradicting concepts, it is drinking and driving. Indeed. So Why would you combine that? Who's driving this, Shahida? So, an excellent question, and I want to, you know, just throw it back to you. Who else would be driving this? We're finding that the uh, liquor industry is certainly promoting the sale of alcohol, but also trying to legitimise their would say that industry. So they, they would say that they're pr promoting the the um, responsible. Drinking, but right. also uh, speaking to how they are providing uh, rehab programs, intervention programs, where they are investing money into that. Yet they are the people that are promoting all of it, and at the end of you know after the fact, they now want to provide interventions. I think for me that's an absolute uh, contradiction of what what they doing i know that we we started off talking about protecting our children but alcohol really is a massive um influence on a society's development so it definitely is in our diversion program where we take children away from the criminal justice system they are in a special program where we give them a second chance in life 
where children sexually abuse other children, children as young as five and six years old, and the high-risk age cohort is between 10 and 14. A lot of these children come from dysfunctional families, sometimes absent father or paternal presence, but also where there are uh, father figures present, a lot of them are subjected to uh, physical abuse, their mothers are subjected to domestic violence, but if we just look at what the risk factor there is, the risk factor is alcohol, where the father would spend all his money on alcohol, beat his wife, beat the children up, not provide food on the table, and these children are misunderstood. They resort to bad, mad behavior, but uh, beneath the layers... They are very sad children who are acting out aggressively, acting out because they, you know they've seen uh, adverts, they've seen uh, you know uh, uh, lots of media or uh, TV shows which demonstrates a lot of sex and violence, and they reenact what they've seen. Uh, and I think that's something also that we need to factor uh, where. Children do not have the filter to process and distinguish always between what is acceptable and unacceptable. And sometimes they do not have impulse control to stop and think before they act, not realizing that actions have consequences. So we, we also need to understand you know, when you spoke earlier on about the myths, how children can also violate other children, how children can be so cruel, and the issue of trust that we, you know, life and, and relationships should be based on implicit trust. But once again, I think it's important, the one important or outstanding uh, ingredient is communication, dialoguing, with children all the time so that they can distinguish, they can identify risky situations and protective situations and making the child realize that they do have options, the right to make choices because each and every child, we do a lot of gender-based violence, work with both children and adults and we speak to them about the sexual reproductive health and rights and bodily autonomy. Um, and, and we make them aware. We always check with them, like, uh, you know, ultimately, who has the decision to say yes or no. And, uh, you know. Do children really have that choice? I mean, if you have an overbearing, drunken adult in your life, how much choice does a child really have? Thank you for asking that question. Yes, I agree. Children do not always have their choice. They do not have the ability to stop somebody that's overpowering, somebody that's much bigger than them, not only in physical uh, uh, size, but also psychologically. Uh, but when we speak to the H uh, SRH, are we talking about dating relationships, about 
children engaging with other children. What's the SRHR? Sexual Reproductive Health and Rights. Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> no, sorry about that acronym. Okay. <laughs> but it's, you know, engaging children so that they also understand that uh, there are boundaries and they need to set limits and that when they Alcohol say Alcohol no, takes that all away. Mm, indeed. And we've what had cases... What do they call it? Dutch courage, I think mm. it is. You know, it just takes away any inhibitions. We've had uh, a very sad case where this young girl, it was end of the year, they were writing exams. And um, after the exam, she went with her friend to some other friends where they had pizzas and coke. This young girl supposedly passed out. And uh, when she woke up, uh, she realized it was late that her mom must be waiting at the school. She went, but she was very out of it, quite dazed. She got home. She went into the shower, collapsed in a heap of blood. She was actually gang raped. Mother was waiting for her to come out of the bathroom when she went in. So these are that's what you speak to. The drinks must have been laced, and yeah, things, of course, ended up very, very sad and traumatic for this young girl because the confusion, the fear, the anxiety, the betrayal, she just couldn't begin to fathom what had happened and who and how and what and the self-guilt that she's been uh, dealing with. I'm actually with. feeling, I feel quite faint after you've told me that story. Uh, and I hope that you aren't feeling faint. This is Diskim Medical Monday. I'm Kathy Kayla. My guest this morning is Dr. Shahida Omar. She's the CEO of the Teddy Bear Clinic. We are live today. It is the 18th of Ju July. If you would like to get in touch, please do. 34519. That is the SMS line. Those SMSs <coughs> are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also send a telegram message, and that number is 61 895 I'd love to have your comments. We are going to be wrapping up uh, in a few minutes from now. So get in touch, reach out, have your say. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. This is Discam Medical Monday. <coughs> I'm Kathy Kayla and my guest this morning is Dr. Shahida Omar, she's the CEO of the Teddy Bear Clinic. They do the most remarkable, remarkable work. It is across the board, it is across the spectrum, and when a child is in danger, that's where the Teddy Bear Clinic steps in. Shahida, just looking, I just want to kind of change tracks for a minute. Do we still have a child protection unit? So, um, Kathy, there used to be a child this protection unit. This is the police unit, unit right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, that was disbanded and then reinstated, not as the child protection unit, as the family violence, child protection and sexual offences unit. It's an offshoot of uh, the SAPS, where it's a specialised unit. Ah, that sounds that sounds very positive, actually. Yes. So they are trained, supposedly to be trained uh, in <laughs> working. You can hear you've got a lot of confidence in this unit with Shader. children and families. And so, in you know, on the ground, the harsh reality is that there are pockets of excellence. It's not something that is consistent. There isn't uniformity. 
and sometimes, more often than not, they are failing our children, where children are subjected to secondary victimization and trauma. So when I speak to that, what I'm actually speaking to is the way they would interview a child, where the child would feel compromised and would feel that he or she is the victim, the way the questions are posed. We've even had cases where children are taken to the crime scene like 10 days after the fact. So everything is cleaned up, but the child is taken there. So they, they've bungled the forensics. Uh, secondly, we've had children going into the same vehicle, ac being accompanied by the alleged perpetrator. Thirdly, where families are not informed that the alleged perpetrator is out on bail and he lives or she lives in the same neighborhood like the child and the family, and the child is once again subjected to trauma because of the fear, the anxiety is what's going to happen. And there are many, many other issues that we could actually speak to, how they're failing our victims, you know, uh, the lack of uh, effective investigation processes So what do well. we do? What do we do? <coughs> Who do we report, report it to? Because... What, something that I learned last year is that anybody who suspects child abuse, whether it be sexual or physical, whatever it is, based on a suspicion, you can make a report. Indeed. So who do you report it to? So, Kathy, silence is violence. If we do not break that silence, so when we find that law enforcement is not delivering on their mandate, there are... Uh, uh, processes. One needs to escalate it. So if, if the investigating officer or the, the constable at the front desk has not responded appro appropriately or timelessly, then the next uh, step would be to speak to the shift commander. If the shift commander has not responded, the station commander. Then there's the cluster commander. But we need to take that action. And I find that uh, where we've assisted families with that kind of response, there's been a lot of uh, positive outcome. I'm sure at this point you've identified where those highly effective people are placed, mm. and that, that's part of the Teddy Bear Clinic and, network. And that unfortunately, it shouldn't be like that. It's based on relationships, right? Now, as we function, it's people that we find who have delivered, who've supported children through these processes, and it should actually apply to everyone. That is their mandate. That is what they are expected to do. Unfortunately, that's not what's happening. Absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, <laughs> not for the first time am I feeling a little bit faint in this conversation with you. How do you personally deal with the things that you see and encounter in your work? So it's very difficult. I, I, I cannot even um, downscore it. There are many days that <laughs> one, one feels like collapsing into a heap when you feel you're breaking your head against a wall and people are not delivering. But the way I cope is in the power of prayer. So a spiritual being, exercise, going for debriefing, um, also looking at my nutritional uh, habits, taking care. So it's about, uh, you know, self-nurturance because who contains the container? And I think that's important. And if you stop feeling, then it's time to leave this 
this kind of work, meaning if you are numb, you can't be effective, you cannot be of any value to anybody out there. Shahida, how did you get involved with the Teddy Bear Clinic? So this is my 23rd year with the Teddy Bear Clinic, and you can see I look like a teddy bear. <laughs> Not so, so much. I have to just tell you that Shahida is the most attractive, glamorous woman, really. It's, I can see why children would relate to you, you know, in the bright colors. And, you know, you look like somebody who children would talk to and trust. So, Kathy, that's another way. When you feel your inside world is not, is chaotic, you try externally to make yourself, you know, my motto is, and everybody that knows me know what, that I say to myself, wake up, make up, show up, and never give up. Oh, and I love that. <laughs> so, that's, that's what I do. Uh, no matter what the situation is, I'm a fighter of note. Uh, and I was headhunted by the Teddy Bear Foundation. I worked at Childline prior to that. So I was already in the children's sector. Is Childline still going? Indeed, and we work very closely with Childline. We do a lot of work together because remember, this is not a uh, child abuse is not a one-man show. It's all about collaboration, coordinated, integrated and organized efforts in reaching out to children and families. Yeah, I, I did a series last year, end of last year, on uh, and it was following allegations in our community about paedophilia. And I thought the best thing that we can do is equip the community and teach them about the facts. And I didn't have the facts, so I spoke to the world experts. And there are certain things that I that I came to learn is that not all molesters are paedophiles and not mm. all paedophiles are molesters. It's, uh, yeah, get your head around that one. Mm. Um, you know, there, there are certain things that paedophiles will know that they're paedophiles around about the age of 13. Mm. We need to have these conversations more, even though I really do feel quite faint <laughs> after talking to you about this. But it's just, it's a very, very heavy heavy topic because it it goes into areas that we don't want to talk about because it is just so ugly and we feel so helpful, and, and helpless. I, and I think, Kathy, more importantly, is we don't want to instill anxiety in our children, the future generation. We want them to grow up and not to rob them of their childhood. And I think uh, the conversations need to be uh, you know, consistent as well. And we need to start talking to children from much younger. The moment they have vocabulary, age-appropriate information around uh, safe, unsafe touches. We don't and conversations. Absolutely. An adult should not be talking, an adult other than a parent, should not be talking to children in a sexual language. That becomes a door. It but builds from there, right? Absolutely, but adults also need to understand that if they do not open the platform of this kind of conversation, children will run out, will not come forward if they're feeling unsafe, they would feel they failed their families and not make a disclosure, or if they're feeling threatened, they would not come forward. So it's important that parents open this conversation, giving children the platform uh, to know that should they have any questions around sex and sexuality, around violence, around the cyberbullying, that they can actually go to that adult, like you mentioned, 
uh, that trusted adults that they know they would get the support and they would not be blamed, shamed, or ridiculed in any way, but would be supported through that process. Absolutely, and I'll tell you, if we can end just on a on a personal story, one of the hardest things to do is to confront somebody who you suspect is a paedophile. Long, long time ago, I had uh, two neighbours. It was two guys, and uh, they lived upstairs from me. My children were little, and you know, whenever my children were downstairs in my complex and they were, and they were playing, these two guys would find a reason to go downstairs. And it's kind of, it triggered like a, it was like a little alarm bell in me. But I thought, you know what, you're just being overprotective. You're the lioness mother, you're overprotective. And one, you know, but I'd, I'd keep an eye on it. Uh, the one day my, my son had a whole lot of friends around and one of the guys from upstairs came and said, can they come and play at our place? Now we're talking about men in their 30s. And I said, no, they can't. They're playing here. My son must have been about eight or nine with his friends. And uh, I remember actually confronting the guy because he would always kind of like schmooze up to my kids. And the one day, and I, this was, this, I felt so bad afterwards, but at the same time, I would rather feel bad than have anything happen to my kids. I would rather let that be the, the collateral damage, right? And uh, the guy was walking into the building and he was, you know, schmoozing up to my kids again. And I said, and I looked at him, I went right up to him and I said to him, go and find friends your own age. Well done, And if Kathy. I tell you something, this guy, he shrunk and he turned away and he walked away. And at that moment... I knew that if I hadn't stopped it, God forbid, the worst could have well, happened. Well, you took back the power that was rightfully yours. But I, it took a lot of courage to mm, do that because mm. understand, and I'm saying this to our listeners, pedophiles are nice people. Very nice people. You're it's nice. often your, yeah. your, your philanthropists. Mm. It's your community supporters. It is your, 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 your beloved sports coach. Your beloved Hebrew teacher, your Even beloved the Imam or the, the priest or the pastor rabbi, exactly. or the rabbi. Because then the community doesn't believe it when the allegations come out and that's a problem. It's the likes of you and me, Kathy. They don't have uh, certain characteristics that would identify them to be a pedophile, but just a, a, a caution to everybody out there yeah. that if an adult play place a lot of attention to your child, wants to help with homework, wants to drive them, wants to, rolls on the grass or the lawn with them, plays games with them, board games, whatever games. I think the important thing to is understand that what is the underlying motivation here? And, and that's red bells and the red flag needs to go on. Parents do not think that they actually interested in just supporting you or they care for you it's, it's not normal it's, it's not normal used love yeah it's not normal for your your teenage child to go and sleep at your best friend's house right That's at your contemporaries it's not normal so just be aware of that and that that little instinct that you have believe it and trust it 
rather be rather err on the side of caution. Indeed, indeed. The worst you'll lose a friend. And you know, we need to to, to really value our children. Children are born, but champions are made. And as in Madiba's words, there is no there is no keener revelation in which uh, in the way in which a society treats its children. Absolutely, and old people, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Mavis, listening to us in Israel, she says, what an excellent and empathetic guest and discussion. Thank you, Mavis. That's so lovely. Uh, some other messages that have come through. Um, Hillel says, hi, Kathy. Children must be believed when they tell parents that they have been molested by family or friends of family. They don't fabricate such things. Do children ever fabricate? So, yes, there are situations where children fabricate, and that's usually when there's uh, a divorce or separation and parental rights and responsibilities are brought into question. Then children have divided loyalties where the parent um, that, you know, is either leaving or the parent that remains is going to contaminate uh, evidence or uh, actually groom the child to, to make false allegations. But, but those either way, it needs to be followed up. It's not a common occurrence. Yeah. But either way, it should be followed up. But right. with our stance is, Cathy, we always believe the child. Yeah, 100%. And uh, Karen says, incredible story. It's been a very insightful show. And that is where we're going to leave it. Uh, Dr. Shahida Omar, CEO of the Teddy Bear Clinic, thank you for coming in. Thank you for sharing your expertise, your insights, and I wish you much strength and good health, onwards and upwards, to continue doing the phenomenal work that you do. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This has been Discam Medical Monday. Join me for next, well, join me next week, Monday, 10 o'clock, you've got a date. I'm Kathy Kayla. Thank you to Diskim and thank you to you. Thanks, Craig. And uh, thank you to my producer, Mashadi. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Hey, and enjoy Mandela Day. God bless. Bye-bye.